right. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Good to see you all. What up? Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, good to see you as well. And uh, I don't know if you guys are like the service of people who just don't care about football or what's going on, but um, the last service, like the Broncos are playing the Chiefs right now. And some of you were probably like, who are the Broncos? Exactly. But at the last service, we were in jerseys and stuff. I was like, is there going to be like a fight that breaks out at the 9 o'clock? But you guys don't care about football at all, I guess. So um, I don't know what that means, but we're going to study the Bible. You'll be more focused for it. So I really appreciate it. And uh, nobody better be streaming the score. But if you are, tell me if we are winning. Okay? So that sounds good. All right. Um, we're going to have to pick up the energy level in here a little bit because thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We might be a little bit smaller, but we're going to be better. And uh, yeah. So anyways, um, I want you to think about, you're going to have to wake up, because I want you to think about uh, a pretty deep question that is kind of overwhelming to think about on a Sunday morning. Like, what do you think is the essence of what makes for a happy life? Like, think about this. Like, what is the most important thing for you to build your life around in order for you to be happy? And it's interesting, all these studies have done about, been done about this, particularly amongst millennials, and the predominant response um, from people in their 20s and 30s about what makes for a happy life usually starts by saying it's the quantity of money you make. Secondly, it's usually the amount of fame that you can acquire. And third, it's usually the amount of autonomy or freedom you can have, personal choice you can have in your own life. Now, here's what's interesting. In 1937, Harvard University launched a study trying to answer this question of what makes for a happy life? What is absolutely essential for somebody to be happy. So they launched a study in 1937. They polled, I think it was 724 men. Uh, some of them are still alive. Polled them, their spouses. They're now over combined 2,000 children, most of whom are still alive as well, with consistent, regular surveys, questionnaires, meetings, trying to answer this question, what makes for a happy life? And you know what's interesting? And here's kind of the essence of their finding. You can read more about it if you want to. But the essence of their finding was what primarily determines somebody's happiness and even long-term emotional and physical health is not the quantity of money you have. It is not the amount of fame you acquire. It is not the amount of independence and autonomy you can have. It's actually something quite different. It's actually, it boils down to the quality of the relationships you have in your life. Interesting? That's what Harvard would say, is the fundamental thing that determines happiness long-term is the quality of the relationships you have in your life. Now, if you can't already tell, this is basically straight up a TED Talk. Like, I just stole this straight up from a TED Talk that I watched. And I have a, a love-hate relationship with TED Talks. So the reason I love them is because a lot of times I think they give really interesting observations about why the world is the way it is and what's the best way to do life. The reason I hate them is because they like, do this really clever job of like, building this need and being like, this is the one thing you better have in your life if you're going to be happy. And then it ends. And everybody in the room is like, wait, 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 are you going to tell me how to do it? And um, I felt that in particular with this TED Talk, where you can see this look of horror on everybody's face as you can see going through their minds like, my marriage is bad, I have no friends, am I going to die an early death? Like, what is, what is, what is going to happen to me? The guy just does this really compelling talk, being like, have really quality relationships, and everybody just claps them off the stage, and they're like, we're all going to die, we're all, we're all going to die. And um, one of the things I love about the Bible is it does a really good job of speaking about the human condition. I mean, like, we didn't need a Harvard study to tell us this reality that we need really quality relationships in our life. But one of the great things the Bible does is acknowledge this tension we all feel that, yes, and you'll see this up here because this is really important to get, but yes, on one hand, nothing impacts the quality of our lives quite like the quality of our relationships. But at the same time, nothing is quite as difficult as having quality relationships, right? Like, we all feel that tension. 
on one hand, nothing impacts the quality of our lives quite like the quality of our relationships. On the other hand, nothing is quite as difficult as having quality relationships. And the thing that I love that differentiates the Bible from, say, a TED Talk is it not only kind of raises this need to say this is important, but Paul, quite explicitly here in Romans 14, is going to shepherd us through the tension of why relationships are so difficult and talk about the power that God gives us for us to actually have some healthy relationships and work through difficulties. Particularly this week, what Paul's going to do in the last half of Romans 14 is he's going to talk about navigating differences and conflicts in relationships. And when I say relationships, I mean them robustly. So I'm not talking just like who you're dating or who you're married to. I'm talking about friendships, coworkers, whatever, you know, uh, siblings, whatever, whatever it might be. And, and I think this is something I feel particularly burdened about because I think my observation of working with people is most people don't have a category for what to do with conflict and relationships. Usually what they think is that there's something uniquely dysfunctional about this relationship, and so I just got to end it. We end it all sorts of ways. We blow up and get angry. Um, we just are silent, and we just slowly drift apart because we don't trust one another to have difficult conversations. The most frequent thing that I see in this generation is we just disappear. Somebody upsets us, we don't say anything, and we just poof, vanish into thin air, and then we poof, we like reappear in a whole new circle of friends, a new church, a new group of roommates, a new city, whatever it might be. And then this really frightening and difficult thing happens where we reappeared and we hope that those people we would be compatible with. And then pretty soon, like there's conflict there as well. And we have to start dealing with the haunting realization of like, maybe I'm like the common denominator in a lot of the conflicts that I'm experiencing in my life. Exactly what is it that I do with this. So Paul is going to acknowledge this tension. Um, there's nothing that impacts your life quite like the quality of your relationships, but there's nothing quite as difficult as having quality relationships. And we particularly feel that with conflict. That's not just a modern phenomenon. Um, we didn't need a Harvard study to tell us that. The Bible talked about that thousands of years ago. And now Paul is going to shepherd us towards a place of actually hopefully being on a trajectory of health. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And uh, we're going to start looking at um, actually verse 23. I'm going to kind of work my way backwards through this passage. Um, I, I think it serves the passage, or at least what I'm trying to get after uh, better. So let me, let me set a little bit of the context that we're going after. What Paul's first going to talk about is that in relationships and in conflict, there's the permission for differences and the death of our preferences. The permission for differences and the death of our preferences. So here's the context of what Paul was addressing in case you weren't here last week. Paul has called the Roman church to be a diverse gospel community, diverse in culture, ethnicity, passion, giftedness, but diversity a lot of times creates tension. And most explicitly in this community, it's created tension as it pertains to the type of food and drink the people in the church are going to consume. These differences of opinions stemmed from a debate over the relevancy of Old Testament dietary laws as non-ethnically Jewish or Gentile Christians are joining the same church as those who are ethnically Jewish. And remember, we said last week, that while this doesn't feel like the most relevant issue of our lives, right? None of you woke up this morning like, man, I'm really stressed about Old Testament dietary laws. What am I going to do with those? I, I get that most of us are not str struggling with that. The real issue that Paul is addressing is how do we handle the difference of opinions and preferences uh, in our relationships with one another? And again, remember what we said last week, what Paul is not talking about are issues of doctrine or theological non-negotiables and their implications, but rather shepherding people through relational conflict that stems from having different opinions about matters the Bible gives liberty in. And as he continues this line of reasoning, Paul gives us two truths. The first, the permission to be different. Verse 23 says this, For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, 
because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All right, what does Paul, Paul mean here? Now, again, remember the debate, of the, the context of the debate is about what they should eat and what it is that they should drink. And what Paul is saying is that as it pertains to this area of opinion, where there is biblical liberty, it is permissible for two people in the same church with the same devotion to Jesus can, to end up in different places over the issue. What Paul is after in the life of the church is not uniformity, but unity in the midst of our healthy gospel diversity. That Paul is saying, hey, this is a matter of opinion and personal preference, and consequently, it is okay for you guys to end up in a different place of opinion and conscience than one another. Now, what we're going to do is try to apply everything that we're talking about to real practical case studies so we can wrap our minds around this, and it's not just theoretical. So we see in verse 21, Paul gives us a case study. He's not just talking about food and dietary laws. That's a little bit harder for us to think about. But he's also talking about the consumption of alcohol, which I think is a relevant thing in the life of the church. And probably all of you have all sorts of backgrounds and experiences in the life of the church if you grew up around it at all. So let's think about that issue for us today. What Paul said, okay, so here's the case study of alcohol consumption in the church. Isn't that a fun kind of case study to work our way through? All right, so what Paul said in Romans 13 is that biblically as it pertains to alcohol, drunkenness is off limits. All right, so drunkenness is not biblically permissible. He has called the people of God to a state of mental sobriety. And so it's not just alcohol, but it's anything that inhibits and prohibits our mental sobriety, not just because Paul's like this killjoy who's like, don't have any fun whatsoever. Actually, the deepest joy for the people who are made by God are uh, obeying God. He is not after the death of our joy, but rather actually for what human flourishing really is, as well as what Paul is after is the people of God meeting God and being changed by God. And consequently, anything that inhibits uh, our mental sobriety and far more significantly inhibits our ability to experience reality is meant to be put off because it's in the context of reality where God meets us and changes us and engages us. So in Romans 13, what Paul has said is drunkenness is off limits, but then, okay, underneath that umbrella, as it pertains to the drinking of alcohol without getting drunk, what Paul is saying here in Romans 14 is there is freedom here. What he's saying is in the same church body, there will be people who drink alcohol and those who don't, and that is okay. So there can be somebody in the church who says, I drink, and the reason I drink is not because I'm sad and I need to be happier. It's not because like, I don't like who I am when I'm sober, and so I'm gonna drink to become the person I always yearn to be. But they drink maybe because they actually like the way they taste. They enjoy it. They enjoy the, the craftsmanship and the artistry or the camaraderie that comes with the sharing of a good drink. So there can be somebody like that, and there can be somebody who says, I don't drink. And the reason I don't drink is not because it makes God love me more than you, drunk sinners, um, but instead... <laughs> Because, you know, maybe it's because they have a past, uh, you know, family history where alcoholism is prevalent, or they have an own personal bad past with alcohol, or they don't want to spend like $10 on a small glass of something that they don't like just because of peer pressure, because they're like, it's just not the best use of my money. Those two people can and should exist in the same church 
And the one who drinks shouldn't write the one off who doesn't drink as being a prude, and the one who doesn't shouldn't label the one who does as being a sinner or less serious about their relationship with God. And what Paul is even going to go on to say, that it's not only permissible for us to have our own personal convictions on these matters of opinions, but even um, we, are, we are permitted to stick to them, and we shouldn't even change them um, just because we want to be acceptable or fit in or we get peer pressured. That's really the idea of what he's saying in verse 22 when he says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Second part of this, the death of our preferences. So we talked about the permission for difference, now the death of our preference. What Paul's going to say is this, and this is at the end of verse 20, is that kind of the idea here is we should be trying to, in the midst of our differences, reflect Christ to one another by killing our preferences to see somebody else thrive. He says this at the end of verse 20. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, we talked about this uh, several times throughout Romans. When we encounter people who are different than us, we tend to label those differences as being bad and wrong. And sort of the driving motivation in our hearts, if we're honest, is how do I change you to be more like me? How do I help my, uh, my will and my opinions go forward and prosper as well. But what Paul is saying is that as we enter into gospel community, as we're impacted by the reality of the gospel, Jesus changes this thinking upside down where the driving motivation is not how do I get my way, but rather as we step into relationships, how do I help you thrive? That Jesus is the one who enters into relationship with us, not to take from us and not to lord his authority over us and not to exploit his privilege over us, but instead, as Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus saved us. The reason we are saved is because Jesus entered into a relationship with me and did not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He counted me more important than himself when he went to the cross. And as Jesus has been to me, so I will be to others. And as I enter in relationships, like a mirror reflecting the way that Jesus has treated me, my driving motivation before it is to take is to give. My driving motivation is before I can ensure that my opinions can go forward is to say, how do I put my opinions to death and help you thrive in the way that God intends you to thrive? How do I build you up in your relationship with Jesus? So again, let's be practical. We'll continue the alcohol conversation. Are you free to drink alcohol without getting drunk in the eyes of the Bible? Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I think you have to do all sorts of interpretive uh, biblical gymnastics to, like, be like, yeah, like, what people were drinking in the, in the New Testament that got them drunk wasn't alcohol, it was grape juice. I'm like, bro, like, I've never seen anybody get drunk off of grape juice. So, like, I think, I think, like, you have to do some real interpretive historical gymnastics to be like, Jesus didn't drink wine and things like that. I, I just think that, okay, so are you free to drink? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But there's a significant question that Paul is saying that we should be asking is not just am I free to do something, but is that thing that I'm going to do help the people around me thrive as well? Now, as it pertains to alcohol, I think this is really pertinent because what I see a lot of times in Denver is that um, there's a lot of, like even really younger people 
who really have bad pasts with alcohol and even would consider themselves alcoholics or struggling with alcohol. And it's uniquely difficult in Denver because a lot of and almost all of Denver culture cycles around the consumption of alcohol in meeting in places where alcohol is served. And it's really difficult for them. And a lot of times those people won't even speak up. They're like in your city group and stuff like that because they don't want to be looked at as being lame. Um, but they tell us as pastors because they know we're already lame. So we're not going to judge them for being lame. And so they're like, yeah, this is like, like I have conversations a lot of times where people are like, I just can't drink. I'm not opposed to other people drinking. I just can't personally drink. And it's really hard for me to have friends because all what my friends do cycles around, uh, circles around the consumption of alcohol. And for the people of God, what Paul is saying is, we not only think like, am I free to drink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we also ask the question, how does this impact the people around me as well? Now, there's nuance here. Like sometimes what I just said gets misinterpreted to be like, hey, only drink alcohol alone in the privacy of your home, okay? That would be weird if the only time you drank was alone. If you were like, yeah, I only drink alone, I'd be like, bro, I'm more concerned about you than if you drink out and about. Like, I don't think what Paul is after is this weird expression of legalism that like only drink after you've pulled the room to be like, hey, any, uh, anybody struggling with alcohol here? Anybody, you know, and somebody's gotta be like, yeah, actually, uh, my mom is an alcoholic. You know, like that would be, like, I don't think he's after that. I, but I think what he's after is a posture of consideration for the people around us that as we are making the decisions of our lives, there's something more significant than am I free? But before I ask that question is how do I build you up? How do I help my brother and sister thrive? And there should be a mutual giving of what's going on here as well. Again, sometimes what happens in context is Paul's talking about the stronger and the weaker. And the one who's weaker in these areas sort of lords that weakness and is like, John's here, nobody can drink. And it's like, no, like there, there's a mutual giving that should create a reciprocal, healthy relationship where the one who's stronger as it pertains to alcohol, for example, should be like, okay, I'm free to drink, but how does this impact the people around me? And the person who's a little bit weaker maybe just has to lead in their vulnerability and transparency to say like, hey, this is hard for me. Um, this is difficult for me. Like some of you have probably really had struggles with alcohol and you're still drinking alcohol just to fit in with your friends and you just haven't been honest. And that's not their fault. Like they can't see through your mind to be like, man, this is really, really hard for him because you're just pretending like this is just the same for you as for anybody else. So there's this mutual communal giving to one another where the strong is saying, hey, how do I lay down my privileges for the weak to thrive? And the weak is saying, hey, how do I lead in being vulnerable and honest and also not being like a killjoy um, in, in uh, engaging the strong also? Beneath all of this is Paul is just laying a basic foundational principle that's essential to healthy relationships where I feel a little bit like Mr. Rogers saying this, and I understand in retrospect, I ended up dressing like Mr. Rogers today also. That was not planned. But, but like, being in a healthy relationship means you think about other people before yourself. I know it's like the craziest thing in the world, and I know it seems like only our kids should like have to be told that, but it's like we all know plenty of adults that we engage in a conversation with or a relationship with, and you're like, man, the only reason you're relating to me is to use me. Anybody know anybody like that? That's exhausting, isn't it? Like, you ever been in a conversation with somebody where you're like, bro, like, I could not be here, and it would make no difference. Like you just, like you're using me. You're using me to tell me all the cool stuff and stories about you. And that's exhausting. Like I wish you would think about me before you think about yourself. Yeah, that's what Paul is saying. You want to have good relationships, have a good marriage, be a good parent. You don't just think about yourself. I know that's really crazy. And that's more underneath the framework of the gospel. That's more than just like a neat principle of like, 
having friends and influencing people. But no, like we are changed by what saved us. Jesus is the model of relationship where he entered in not to take from us, but to give to us. He looked not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He counted other people as being more important than himself, most explicitly when he went to the cross to die for sin when he was the one sinless person in the history of the world. And if that's what saves us, that's what changes us to take that posture in the relationships we enter into, all right? All right, two, the real big idea. So we talked about, as we have these differences, there's permission for difference, and then we lay down our preferences. Two, practically navigating our disagreements. All right, so let's rewind to earlier um, in the passage as Paul is shepherding this church through these disagreements. Two additional truths emerge underneath this. The first, Paul's gonna talk about the issue underneath the issue of our disagreements. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 is actually one of my favorite verses in Romans. I had never really been struck by this until I really studied this passage this past week, but it's, it's really powerful. Let's look at it. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying, and this is, gosh, if I could communicate like how important this is. It, okay, it is. What Paul is saying is you think what you're fighting about is what to eat and what to drink. You think the most important thing is what you eat and what you drink and all those opinions, but it's not. There's an issue underneath the issue. And underneath the debate about these opinions, about the debate of, underneath the debate of every opinion are actually the issues of whether or not we as the people of God, fueled by the Holy Spirit, will reflect the righteousness of Jesus and pursue the peace offered by Jesus and spread the joy of Jesus in our relationships. All right, let's be practical here. Let's talk about marriage. This, I know not all of you are married, but this is where I see this most explicitly in my life. Here's my theory about marriage that might make um, many of you feel uncomfortable. I think most of us get married for like really selfish motivations, if we're just honest, okay? Even the language we use, where a lot of times it's like, why do we want to get married? And it's like, you know, like we know not to say it out loud, but here's what I think most of us are feeling. It's like, I like you. I like doing stuff with you. I like the way you make me feel. I kind of want to lock this thing down so you don't make anybody else feel like this for the rest of the time that I'm alive. Uh, that's, that's a lot, of, like we wouldn't say that, but we kind of feel that. And even like when we go into marriage a lot of times, like we're not honest. Like when we're dating, we're not honest. We lie because we're like, if I told you the truth about what I really think, I don't think you'll want to do this with me for the rest of our lives. And so what happens a lot of times is we marry somebody that we think is almost a carbon copy of ourselves. And we acknowledge there's differences, but they're cute differences, right? We're like, yeah, 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 like they're different and they make me a better person. And like, even that, that's like really selfish, right? Like the only ways they're different are ways that make me better. And it's like, well, what about the things that aren't gonna make you better? But we'll talk about that later, okay? And, but here's what happens, is you can only pretend to be somebody you're not for a certain period of time. And so several months into marriage, several years into marriage, you know what happens? You can't keep it to yourself anymore, and you actually start being really, really honest. And it freaks a lot of people out because it's like, wait a second, you lied to me. Like, you deceived me. Like, like you, didn't, you didn't say you had the strong opinion about the way that money's spent. You didn't have the strong opinion about the way a house looks, but this is what happens. I very rarely encounter a couple where one person... Um, spends a lot of money, and one person wants to save a lot of money, where one person handles conflict by being like, we got to figure this out right now. I don't care what you got going on, we got to figure this out right now. And the other person's like, 
we'll never talk about it. It'll, we'll just never talk about it at all. Where one person is like, there has to be order and cleanliness in the house. If everything's not in its proper place, I can't rest. And one person who's like, I feel more comfortable surrounded by just piles of things. And I don't see why everything has to, I don't see why you got to put it in a box. Like why you got to put everything in its particular place. And these differences arise and it creates a lot of tension and conflict. And a lot of times what happens is couples don't really know what to do with this, particularly when things that seem so silly actually start to get so serious and you feel so disrespected in the process. Now, I'll talk about my own marriage, okay? My wife and I, I, it seems silly even to say out loud, my wife and I, the thing we still, like a lot of times pastors tell stories and they're like, and here's how we fix everything in our lives and we're all better. It's like, no, like my wife and I fought about this this weekend. We still fight about the state of how clean our house should be, okay? So my wife, she is a woman of order, okay? Um, she actually reminded me of this. I asked her permission. I'm not an idiot, okay, to talk about all this stuff. <laughs> she was in the 9 o'clock, and I was like, what'd you think? And she was like, you should actually, like, give more detail. So I'll give you a little more detail. This morning, up at 6.30, I walk up. My youngest daughter is up because she's crazy and is an early riser. My wife is up with her, and, like, my, my one-year-old has been trained to, like, know the first thing you do when you wake up is unload the dishwasher. Like, I walk into the kitchen, and the dishwasher is open, and she's just pulling forks and handing them to mom, and mom's putting them away. Like, she is developing this little girl to be, like, an exact little clone of her, and I, that's good. I'm okay with that, okay? So anyways, my wife is a woman of cleanliness and order, and she's just a person, like, if we get home and things aren't in their proper place, like, we don't sit down and watch TV. We put things in their proper place. Then we sit down and we watch TV. I am not like that. Um, some might classify as a slob. Um, I prefer to think of myself as being patient with messes. Um, that's, that's the way I've come to terms with it. For those of you who are like me, you're going to have that vocabulary now, so when you get into a fight, to be like, I'm not disorderly. I'm just patient. I don't understand why you can be patient. Don't say that, okay? Because then your spouse can be like, Brian said that, and then they won't want to come to the church anymore because I empowered your slobbiness, and we're trying to work on that, okay? But, but that's what happens, right? Okay, so... So we, we, still, we have really different opinions about this. Our families of origin factored in this. I could, I could talk all day about this, and we still fight about it after uh, almost a dozen years of marriage. Now, we're making serious progress, and I'm not just saying that because, I mean, if I was like, we're, it's hopeless. I, I, hopefully you know me. I'll just be honest, okay? I feel like we're making serious progress in the peace in our marriage as it pertains to this issue where we have so much natural conflict. And you want to know why I feel like we're making so much progress? It's not because either of our opinions about the issues have changed. Like, usually that's what people think, is like, yeah, 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 we finally, we have talked so much about why our opinion is right. I still think I'm right. Like, I think when Jesus returns and he walks in my home, he'll be like, you were right. And I'll be like, I told you. Love in the Muslim, I'm just kidding. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, the Bible doesn't speak about this, right? So, so there's permission for difference. And like, to be honest, like, my preferences, my opinions are that I am right. And my wife has not been persuaded by that whatsoever. But you know why I feel like we're making significant progress in this is because I recognize that there is an issue underneath the issue that is far more important than the debate about when do we clean up the dishes in the sink. That what is most essential is not me getting my way or imposing it on my family, but rather believing, as Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. To say the issue underneath the issue is, will I be the kind of man who, changed by the gospel, empowered by the Spirit, 
pursues righteousness, advocates for peace in my marriage by putting my wife's preferences and needs before my own, pursue her joy and our mutual joy as a family. Don't you say, like, the issue is never the issue. It's the question of whether or not I will be to you as Jesus has been to me and consequently put my preferences to death so that we might mutually thrive. Because what is infinitely better than getting our way, you know what's infinitely better than you getting your way? Is the kingdom of God breaking into your marriage. You know what's infinitely better than you getting your way? Is the kingdom of God breaking into your city group. You know what's infinitely better than you getting your way? Is the kingdom of God breaking into your roommate, you and your roommate's tense relationship? It's way better than getting our way is experiencing the righteousness and the peace and the joy that comes with in the wake of the legacy of Jesus counting other people more important than myself. And this is just one of those times where it's like by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm asking him to check collectively and universally our hearts because there's a lot of us that would rather put somebody else to death than see them thrive all in the name, not of the kingdom, but of our preferences. Man, like some of us, we will kill our spouses, we will kill our kids, we will kill friendships, we will kill relationships, all in the name of getting our way. We would never say it out loud. It makes you uncomfortable when I say it out loud, but so many relationships fall apart. Marriages are tense, not because of a preeminent love of the kingdom, but a preeminent love of self. And we, as the people of God, changed by the gospel, empowered by the spirit, have to put those opinions to death. I just, I feel led to say this. A lot of times in your conflict, what you feel like is like, like, I think about this in the context of marriage, but I think it can apply anywhere. I don't know if this makes sense, but it just kind of came to me. I think a lot of times, like, we feel like in these conflicts, like, the goal is to win, even if it means, like, killing your spouse in the process. Look, if you win and get your way, but you hurt your marriage, you both lose. Nobody won. Do you understand that? Like, nobody wins, even though you got your way. All right. Whatever you want to do with that. Okay. <laughs> I know it's like, I don't have a cute story about a dog to make you feel better about that. It's just like, all right. Second sub-point of this, the priority in our disagreements. Paul says in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace in our mutual upbringing. So he says, as we then come into conflict, the goal then is peace and mutual upbuilding. And then he contrasts this twice with what most of us instinctually do, uh, where we are tearing one another down. He talks about this in two different ways. Verse 15 uses very strong language. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then again in verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So Paul says this twice. We know it's important. He talks about destroying the work of God. And what he's referring to here is the robust gospel work of God and its beautiful implications. That is, that Jesus died for us, and he not only died for me personally and individually, as significant as that is, and he not only died for me personally and individually so that I might uh, individually be reconciled back to God, but God is in the business of creating a family, a new, renewed, restored 
people. That is, that there is not only this vertical relationship where I am reconciled back to God, but it has horizontal implications where I am reconciled back to you uh, and one another as well. And consequently, what Paul is saying in Romans 14 is the church is something more than an event uh, to spectate at. It's something more than an institution. It's something more than just a family of a group of people that we happen to get along with. But what Paul is quite explicitly saying in Romans 14 is the church is the work of God that the gospel work of God, of Jesus on the cross, is not just dying and resurrecting to save individual people, but to reconcile those people back to one another who would unite underneath the fatherhood of God, to see one another as brothers and sisters, and to love and build one another up as opposed to tear one another down. Think about this. What's happening right now in this moment is preeminent than even the Broncos playing the Chiefs because you are in the environment of the work of God. Like, that's what's happening right now. Like, if it's not weird to touch the person next to you, you can touch them and be like, this is the work of God. Like, this is what God has been after in the universe and through the death and the resurrection of his son. And consequently, the posture in the midst of our tension then is not meant to be like, well, it's not that big of a deal if I just disappear and go somewhere else. You understand that? Like, we sort of inhale this cultural air that we breathe all around us that as it pertains to any relationship, and even in church relationships, is it's no big deal to put somebody else on blast. It's no big deal to tear somebody down. It's no big deal to talk about people rather than to people. It's no big deal to only talk to people when I've been in my head, judge, jury, executioner, and I want to put them on blast over coffee and make them feel bad about the way they treated me. It's no big deal to disappear and just show up somewhere else. No, what you are interacting with is the work of God. The work of God. And I understand it's like most people act, act that way. It's not that big of a deal. But what Paul's saying in Romans 14 is this is where we have to be a counterculture. This is where like the majority is actually wrong. And we, as the people of God, as opposed to destroying the work of God, destroying the one for whom Christ died, we instead, verse 19, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Third, and very quickly and finally, the idea that Paul is after in all this quite succinctly, and he writes about this elsewhere in the New Testament in Galatians 5, is that we have been freed, and rather than going to a place of like, all right, well, what am I free to do where I just like can get my way? Gospel freedom is being liberated from our selfishness and sin to give our lives away. That's what gospel freedom is, is I am liberated from my selfish thinking. I am liberated from the tyranny of sin that tells me I'm the most important being in the universe to say, God is the most important being in the universe. And the most important being in the universe did not use that privilege as an excuse to get his way over me, but he stepped out of heaven into history and died for me. That liberates me from selfishness. That liberates me. I, I, I really feel this burden right now. I don't know if you can tell. I like really feel this burden that there's such practical, relational, and experiential dysfunction when we take this posture of, we would never say it out loud, but we feel it. I'm the most important being in the universe. Relationships can't thrive when I think that way. That's what we have to be liberated from. And we're like, stunned that marriage is so hard when two of us enter into it believing we're the most important person. You know what two people believing they're the most important people create? Dysfunction, of course they do. 
We're liberated. We're free. We're set free from thinking that way. To step out of this fake throne that we have architected by ourselves. And that's, that throne is janky because it ain't real. And to hand it over to the one king of the universe, Jesus, and say, no, I serve you. I want to be to people the way you've been to me. All right, so Paul says this in Galatians 5. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're liberated to do, is to serve and to love and to count other people more important than ourselves. Again, not because it's just like, well, it's a neat religious principle for being nicer. But, you know, Jesus treated us, that, treated us that way in the gospel. That's what saves us. And the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead, he indwells us to change us into being these kinds of people in our friendships and relationships and marriages and whatever, whatever it might be. I'm going to leave you with kind of this, okay? So Paul acknowledges attention. Nothing impacts our lives quite like the quality of our relationships. Nothing's quite as difficult as having quality relationships. How do we navigate that tension? Well, we marvel and meditate, not just conceptually, but quite practically, as Jesus has been to me, so I'm going to be to other people, as well as Paul talks about the Spirit in this passage. He indwells me, changes me, empowers me. Um, what is hard for me to naturally propel my heart to do. And consequently, we have an optimism even towards the most um, difficult relationships because the God of this universe is working and cares about the work of God being built up. Let me give you one practical question I've been wrestling through in my own life that hopefully will be uh, helpful to you, and then we'll pray and transition. The thing that I wrestled through, I don't know if you know this, I'm like a really opinionated person. And I know that's like, you know, in some ways it's like, that's easy to laugh about. I told my wife after my sabbatical, I'm like, I bet I would be like a really difficult person to live with because uh, I just have really strong opinions about everything. And so this is hard for me. It really is. That's why I'm like so passionate about this because I'm like, I want, I, I want to do this in my life. But the thing that I ask myself is to say, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of blank, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the thing I've been working through this past week is like, what do I need to put in that blank for me? Um, what are the things in my life that I elevate to a place where I'm like, no, like the kingdom will, like, will rise or fall on this. And it's crazy the non-biblical things we put in there, right? So it's like, um, whether it's the, the, the state of the cleanliness of our house, um, whether it's schedule preferences, whether it's the amount of sleep that I get, whether it's what we do and the very limited amount of free time that we have in our lives, whatever it is, it is fill in the blank for yourself. I would just encourage you to work through that and say, okay, the kingdom of God is not blank but it is righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. And so maybe this week, what is something even really practical in a relationship where there's a lot of tense, uh, tenseness that I can lay down um, for the sake of seeing the righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit offered to us in the gospel flourish? That sound good? All right. Um, hope that was helpful. What we're going to do now is I'm going to pray, but we're going to transition also. One of the things we've been doing in the fall, and I love about this, has been interviewing some of our uh, members about how some of the things we're talking about uh, is impacting their lives. So uh, we're going to have Andy come up here, and he's going to introduce all that. But I'm just going to pray to ask the Spirit to do this in our lives, and, uh, and we'll transition. Father, thankful for this passage that has been so convicting to me, and I pray that it's a gift to our people as well. I pray that they know they're loved and they're cared for, and you love and care about us. And you know, love, there's a tension there, because sometimes love is just, like, 
this incredibly safe and secure thing that says, like, it's okay not to be okay. Um, but love also navigates that tension that it's not okay to stay there. And, um, and not because, like, we're worried that there's going to be abandonment if we don't perform, but rather that there's, because there's such a safety and an acceptance, we can actually change in the way that we were meant to change. And so, Father, I pray that, you know, probably most of us don't feel like we're killing it in our relationships. Uh, most of us probably feel like, man, like, my marriage is really hard right now. I have some friendships that are really hard right now. I feel really alone right now. The majority of people I interact with, that's their posture. And I pray that they wouldn't feel condemned or discouraged. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even pray right now against this notion of like, okay, well, if I just do the right things, you'll start blessing my relationship. But instead, to take this posture of you love us and you care about us. And Jesus counted us more important than himself, which is unthinkable. Like, I just pray right now we would marvel at that reality because most of us are always trying to get people to make us the most important people. And that Jesus would count us more important than himself and that he would die for us and he would come to live inside of us and to change us, make us more like Jesus in this respect. This week, let us put to death things that are not a matter of the kingdom. Let the kingdom thrive in our marriage and friendship and our church most significantly. And we pray these things would be done for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.